Welcome to this podcast for St. Peter's Church Greenham, as we seek to become loving, witnessing and growing people. And let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at this story of your disciples, May the restoring power of your love and grace flow through all of my words into all of our hearts. And each one of us here would know that you take our brokenness and you restore us to who we are meant to be. Amen. The story of Easter is called the greatest story ever told. And it's very interesting as we continue in this Easter season, as we continue to celebrate the story of Christ's death and his resurrection, that we don't just consider what that event was as a place in history. But we continue daily, weekly, monthly to consider how that story, how that encounter with the risen Christ that the disciples experience, how does that relate to each one of us here and now? And how does it change things? Chapter 21 in John's Gospel, the last chapter of his book, is like a little appendix. The previous verse, which wasn't read, is kind of like the climax of the book, where John explains what he was trying to do as he wrote his Gospel. The end of chapter 20 says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And you can just imagine his editor going, right, that's it, John, cut there. What a great sign-off. And yet he wants to add on this final chapter that we heard read today. And why chapter 21 is so important is because it's not just about what Jesus did, But chapter 21 is the story of how Jesus changes lives. And in particular, the life of the disciple Peter. We all know the Easter story and hopefully for each one of us, cognitively in our head, we know that By dying on the cross, Jesus brought the forgiveness, the redemption from sin. By rising to new life, he brought the hope that death is not the end. But until we see exactly how that event changes someone's life, that's the moment that we can enter into and encounter the risen Christ to see our lives changed You see, the Easter story is the greatest story ever told. 
not just because of what Jesus did, but because of it, God takes broken things, broken people like ourselves, and he restores them. And so we enter chapter 21, and we see that the disciples are going back to what they know, not just the place that they know, the Sea of Galilee, where most of the disciples were from, but they go back to the activity which they were good at, which was their profession before they encountered Jesus. They go fishing. And I don't know if you noticed the disciples who were named in that moment, each one of them had a particular experience of brokenness that, was, that required restoration. You know, Simon Peter denied Christ three times in the high priest's house and ran away when the cockerel crowed as he experienced the prediction of his denial of Jesus. Thomas, called the twin in the previous chapter, had just refused to believe in the resurrection of Christ until he touched the scars on his hand. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, a disciple we met right in the start of John's Gospel, was the one who said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? As he refused to believe, that God could work out of that place. The sons of Zebedee, the ones who, when they experienced the transfiguration of Christ, desired to sit on Christ's right and his left, out of their own arrogance, out of their own pride. Each one of these disciples' name at this point, I think, is significant. Because each one of them had experienced a brokenness that needed restoration. And so the Christian story always begins with each one of us acknowledging our own brokenness. The brokenness that we have because of the events that surround us. And maybe the brokenness that is within you just because life has been hard. You have had to deal with sadness, with tragedy. Through the last couple of years, we have all been reminded and had our bubble burst that we do not live in a utopia where everyone's life is perfect all the time, as much as social media would like to tell us that. We live in a broken world, and each one of us lives through brokenness. It may be because of an understanding of who you are, of what you struggle with, at the simplest heart of the Christian message is the acknowledgement that everyone, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Each one of us, throughout the moments in our days, act in our own self-interest, 
sometimes cognitively, other times unconsciously, to the detriment of others. Because we live the experience of self-preservation and survival, and because we live in our own experience of wanting the best for ourselves. It's in that brokenness that God desires to bring restoration. It might be in the brokenness of fear or insecurity. And as the story of Peter becomes so dominant in this chapter, it is that story of standing at the high priest's house, an act of bravery within itself, as all the other disciples had run away, that Peter had his moment of greatest fear and insecurity, that he could not stand in that moment and admit who he was as a follower of Christ. It's the same fear, the same insecurity that each one of us experiences in different ways in our daily lives. The gospel story, as we relate to it, begins in the place of brokenness. And it's quite significant then, as the story develops, as the disciples go out and fish, as we have this parallel story set up, echoing their call when they're not doing very well at their job, and there's someone at the shore. How they don't recognize it's Jesus is a mystery, partly because this is something that Jesus has done before. But as Jesus tells them to cast the nets on the other side, that's the moment the disciple whom Jesus loved, a pseudonym that John uses for himself, recognizes that it is Christ. You see, the story of our brokenness and how it relates to God is by a God who meets us where we are. He meets the disciples at the beach of the Sea of Galilee, in the place which is home to them, doing the activity that they have done thousands of times throughout their lifetime, Jesus doesn't expect to meet them in the temple in Jerusalem, but he goes to the Sea of Galilee. See, if the greater story begins with our brokenness, the first moment of drama comes in the Christ who meets us where we are. You don't need to seek after God, to strain after God, to run after God, to find him in the mountaintops or in the holy places, because God is searching for you. And God meets you in the places where you find home. For many of you, I'm sure it will be this building here at St. Peter's, which is your spiritual home. Brothers, it may be in your family home. It may be in your working life. It may be as you're doing your day-to-day -day activities, seemingly doing the normal. That's when Christ meets us. 
and in the moment of recognition, everything changes. Peter is Peter, impetuous, dramatic, jumps off the boat and swims to shore, even though they're pretty close to the shore itself. And there is Christ, meeting the disciples, not in this holy moment, but in the normal, the mundane, in the cooking of a barbecue for breakfast. And there's no better weekend to think of Jesus Christ cooking a barbecue than on a bank holiday weekend, of acknowledging that Christ meets you in the normal places of your life. And so we get to the final part of the story. We've begun in the brokenness of the disciples. We've seen the encounter of Christ in the normal and the mundane. And finally, we're taken into this wonderful conversation that Jesus and Peter have. And it's an important conversation because it parallels the three denials that Peter has done just 40 days previously. No, just a few days previously, sorry. Peter denied Christ three times. And so Jesus asked him this question three times, do you love me? If my wife continued to ask me that question, I'm sure I'd get just as annoyed as Peter. Surely you understand. First time round, I said I love you. Why are you asking me again? Peter not realising what Jesus was doing in this moment. In fact, we actually lose a little bit of this in our English translation because Jesus doesn't say the same word three times. He actually uses two different Greek words for love. He uses the word phileo, which is a word that means brotherly love. But he also, in the second time, uses the word agape, which means godly love. So when he says, do you love me the first time, it's do you love me like a brother? Peter replies, of course you know I love you. When he asks the second time, he asks me, do you love me? with a godly love. And this word agape, it's been used throughout the Christian tradition to show the greatest form of love. The greatest love that John himself had talked about a few chapters earlier. The love of when someone lays down their life for a friend. And behind all of this, as Jesus restores the broken Peter, it's not just about the forgiveness of what happened at the denial, but it's in the preparation and in the transformation of someone who is going to have their life changed so much that they themselves will be able to lay down their life for Christ's sake. This is why Jesus at the, talk, at the end talks about the kind of death that Peter himself is going to experience. And we see this transformation in Peter, the man who was at the high priest's house denying Christ 
just 40 days later, standing up in the temple, then standing up before the authorities saying, this Jesus is risen and I am willing to stake my life on it. Because he knew the consequences of his words could mean an accusation of blasphemy and being sent on a death penalty himself. And ultimately, as most of the twelve disciples were, they were martyred for their faith. They laid down their life for the Christ that they loved. I wonder if you've ever heard the quote, the greatest evidence for the resurrection is the Watergate scandal. And what the Watergate scandal proved was that 12 men in one room couldn't last days without revealing the lies of what, of what happened there. The disciples, if the resurrection was not true, went and gave their lives up for it. If 12 men couldn't hold a secret for five days at Watergate, why did 12 men and so many others go to their death declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's the story of Christ restoring what was broken. And not just restoring it, but seeing it so transformed that it goes on to bring light, forgiveness, restoration to so many others in this broken world. Now, I love a good sports film. And I was discussing with someone the other day, are sports movies any good? You know, when you've got... Uh, the story of football, I don't know if you've ever seen Escape to Victory, where you've got a load of footballers come and they defeat the Nazis, it's great. Pele comes on, he's got a broken arm, scores an overhead kick, everyone's happy. For some people, that doesn't count as high drama. And for some reason, sports films don't tend to win Oscars. But I love them, partly because I love sport, and therefore you know, it's an extension of that thing that I love, partly because sport in of itself gives us such wonderful drama. And whether it's the final kick of a football match, whether it's the final ball hit for six in cricket, whether it's the dying moments of a rugby match where one try can win the game, sport takes us to the edges of our emotion and often gives us the way we can express ourselves through all the tragedy and celebration and joy going on in our lives. But unfortunately, we haven't been able to get a clip from one of my favourite sports movies, which is a film called Coach Carter. And it's a film, it's a, it's a biopic of a true story of an American high school basketball coach who comes into this school in San Francisco, which is run down, uh, where the students have very low aspirations and very low chances of, of getting somewhere. 
and he, he starts coaching the high school basketball team. They start to do well. They go on an unbeaten run. But at the very beginning, he makes an agreement with his students that if they're going to play basketball, they're going to turn up to their classes, they're going to sit in the front row, and they are going to work and achieve. Because he knows that as good as basketball players they might be, the best chance they have for a better life is to win a scholarship into an American college and to be able to get a degree paid for because of their basketball skills. And so it's a two-way thing. And there's one character in the film, a very troubled young man who is clearly clashing with the coach. And every time he comes on to play, the coach drags him aside and says, what is your deepest fear? And it becomes a little bit of a running joke through the film. And eventually, the young man quits the team. He goes onto the streets. He's offered a chance from a friend to start drug running. And his life goes awry until he sees and meets with tragedy. And he comes back. And as the film is reaching a climax, what happens is the coach realises that none of his students have been going to their classes and they've been doing great at basketball but rubbish in their studies. And so he closes the gym. He says, you are not going to play until you fulfil the contract. And there's outrage in the community. Uh, it's not quite the same in Britain. We don't quite care about what's going on in our secondary school sports, but in America, it's a big deal. And the whole community are outraged that this unbeaten team are suddenly not being able, allowed to play. And it builds up and builds up complaints to the school board, to the head teacher, and eventually the coach is told to step down and the gym is opened. And there is a wonderful scene as the coach steps through into the gym for the final time, cardboard box in hand, as effectively he's been fired. And he sees his students sitting there, not practicing basketball, but at tables, studying as his mantra has got through to them. And they tell him to get lost because they've got to pass their exams before they play basketball. And there's this wonderful moment of the kid who went astray standing up and makes a speech. And he quotes from this speech by Marianne Williamson and he says this, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And I love that quote. 
And I love that quote because it summarizes that story of Peter, of someone who in this conversation about love of Christ is liberated from his fear and his denial and his very presence as he goes on and to proclaim the gospel of Christ has liberated men and women in Judea in the first century. As the church continued to grow, as it continues to grow together all around this world, the light of Christ liberating, restoring all that was broken. Amen.